Welcome to Economics Happy Hour. My name's Matt. And I'm Jade Ram. And we have uh, a third guest with us. Uh, Brian O'Rourke is back on the on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Hey, it's great to be with you. And uh, I'm getting hungry, Jadrian. So, I am, if you can hear my munching, I am eating an oatmeal cream pie because I need a snack oh, before we do this. I haven't had oatmeal cream pies since like 1991. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, it's been a while. It's been a while. The... Jadrian's coming straight from office hours right before an exam. So how is in high demand and it worked up an appetite talking to students. And I'm that also means I'm very energized because I spent an hour and a half rapid fire answering questions. So I'm very excited to sit back and listen to Brian talk the entire time. And I will rapid fire ask him questions instead uh, about what we want to talk about. Yeah. All right. Well, we can start with uh, drinking. Jadrian, we'll let you start with your drink on this fine evening. Sure. So I I am in the office, uh, so I am not consuming an alcoholic beverage, uh, but the office paid for this. So I am drinking a, and I believe it's pronounced Perrier, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm drinking a sparkling water that we purchased for some seminar workshop or something. Uh, it is the lime flavor, if that matters, but nobody else is drinking them. So I drink seltzer water, so I'm happily drinking it. And Brian, what do you have? So it's getting to be fall here. So I thought, what's a good fall drink? So, you know, nice. Well, where is it? There it is. So nice uh, proper cocktail glass here. This is a whiskey sidecar. Ooh, classy. What What is in a whiskey sidecar? So I've got Jameson, simple syrup, um, an orange liqueur. It's supposed to be Cointreau, but we are out and lemon juice. So that sounds very good. It is. I haven't had the sidecar for a few years, and I just thought, you know, that sounds like a good fall. You know, going it's, into it's fall sort drink. of like a whiskey margarita. I mean, it sounds. Yeah, it, is that a tequila? I guess, triple yeah, it's verging on that. No salt. Right. Or, I mean, orange no liqueur. Salt, is... No lime juice. Or... Yeah, they're usually made with bourbon or brandy or cognac. The sidecars, mm-hmm. but. We got lots of whiskey here. <laughs> so I am having Perfect. a Mad Tree. It is the Summer Camp Hazy IPA. Do either of you know the significance of this beer? Hold on, Mad Tree Hazy. Where's it from? Uh, that would that would give away some of the significance. Oh no! Oh no! Um, but no, I I don't I don't know. The Brian, difference. do you know the significance of this beer? My guess is it has something to do with the Murder Camp movie, but oh, no, well, close. It spent some time in your trunk, coming oh. back from Cincinnati. <laughs> so I bought a couple six packs of IPAs I'd never tried in Cincinnati. Didn't drink them there, and Brian, who drove, drove them back to Pennsylvania, and when we visited, picked them up a little bit ago. So uh, nice. it's from Jet Set, and spent some some good quality time in your vehicle, Brian. <laughs> I took good care of it, really. Yeah, yeah I can tell. So, I appreciate that we have somehow continued the jet set theme even well past our um, <laughs> jet set interviews. We somehow still have a little nugget of jet set staying yeah. with us. Pretty soon, we'll just be able to uh, promote the next jet set conference. And... So, I hope the I hope we will be presenting, uh, preparing that, presenting it, and telling everybody about it very soon. Um, I think it will be soon. Cool. Uh, so today, today, uh, so 
the title's Economics Happy Hour, which implies, you know, happy topics. Um, of course, happy hour is also a thing at a bar. But given the recent kind of terrorist attacks in Israel and then the corresponding uh, actions by the, their government and the declaring war on Hamas, we, uh, Brian actually reached out and said, hey, something to talk about a little bit of economics of war. And, you know, it's a massive topic. It could cover multiple textbooks, but maybe a couple will for the listeners to go through a few things that we think about or a few things the average person could keep in mind when thinking about how does war impact the economy. So that's the general idea I think we had today, right? I'm reading into your text message because yours was like, we should talk economics of war. And we're like, sure. But is that, is that a good summary or what else, what else should we add to the? Yeah, I, it's pretty good. I mean, I think, um, well, let me ask you all this. Um, when you were in college, how insulated were you from what was going on outside of campus? Well, hold on. Let me help here. In the sense that I went to college, I graduated high school in 2005. So just a couple years after the Iraq war started, right? So like I'm not Gulf War One, but I guess Gulf War II. Um, so I will say I was aware of what was going on through sort of undergrad and grad school because I had friends who were serving in Iraq mm -hmm. and Afghanistan sort of at the same time. Um, you know, Past that, my knowledge of what was going on offside of, outside of campus was really sort of local related things. Like my undergrad was located in the area that they do capital punishment in Texas. So like I was aware of like the death penalty and like fights about the death penalty, but like I wasn't sort of nationally aware of what was going on with other stuff. So I, I, I'll say I'm a weird in between. I went 94 to 98. I had a bunch of friends in like the Army Reserve, but that was a pretty piece. I mean, it was between the Gulf War and between 9-11 when I was in school. So, um, so I'm mean, kind of aware of things. So how about you, Brian? Yeah, I the only thing I remember other than getting a newspaper to check, because when I was in undergrad, we had to go to the newspaper on Monday to to do fantasy football stats. So that was the only time I'd ever pick up a newspaper. Um, but I had a friend who was working at the radio uh, radio station on campus, and I went into the just to say hi. And it, it was the day that um, of the Oklahoma City bombing, and that's the only thing I remember from off campus happening during my four years of undergraduate school. It was, you know, all the teachers would say, "Ah, you're living in a bubble. You're living in a bubble." And then my first, this would have been probably actually probably the second week of teaching um, was nine eleven. And I was teaching at James Madison at the time, and we had a ton of students from D.C., and nobody had any clue what was going on really at the time. Um, but I was I was a little more aware of what was going on as a teacher, but probably not that much more aware than what the students were uh, as far as what was going on outside. It's it's I mean, it's a time in life where you are you are mm -hmm. concentrating on your relationships on campus and you're concentrating on your studies and unless there is something that directly impacts you, like you guys were saying, you had friends who were in the military. Um, I mean, there's just, there's really no reason for students to be that connected to what's going on off campus. Yeah. No, I, That's I, interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. 
No, I think it's, you're right. And I think that, I mean, to some extent, like issues with war came up. But even though I was an economics major, the pervasive myth that I would hear is that wars are good for the economy. Oh, interesting. World War II got us out of the depression. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That this I, I you know I was thinking about this right because I was trying to prep of like okay are we going to talk about the broken window fallacy like where are we where are we going with this um, I, I think I, I I started to think about this right like that's what I was taught in macro this idea that we had great uh, we had awful unemployment in the 30s and uh, World War II put everybody back to work and production and sort of built our economy and it became the future manufacturing of our economy sort of the backbone. Um, right. Other countries lost their production facilities, but yeah. we had ours. So the 50s and 60s and 70s production was great because World War II helped us get there. So actually, I, I didn't realize it. I think I was taught basically that same story. Yeah. And I don't recall if I was taught it in macro or it's just a pervasive myth. I don't think I was taught it in macro. I'm going to give a shout out to my, you know, <laughs> I think I got good macroeconomic education by uh, Dr. Randall Waldron, who's no longer at South Dakota, but uh, still, you know, still, um, teaching the college, the youth of today. But uh, why, why don't we start with the broken window fallacy and the idea that, you know, breaking a window is not good for society. Uh, Jadrian, you mentioned it. So do you want to give a quick definition or if you're laughing, so, so if you don't want no, to, I can, I can do it. Um, I don't know why this is one of those econ concepts. I understand it internally, but every time I try to go and explain it, I somehow sort of get it backwards. Uh, but Big picture, so it's it's a it's a parable of the broken window fallacy. So it's this story of essentially I don't remember exactly who the per, like maybe it's a tailor or something. There's some business owner who opens a shop uh, or owns a shop, and some heathen runs through and breaks their window, and they have to spend money to then rebuild that window. And sort of people who are looking on say, "Isn't that great? They've spent money to help a window producer." now have a window, they have sort of stimulated the economy because they've had to hire somebody to replace the glass and clean it up and stuff like that. Um, and sort of the broken window fallacy is this idea that destruction creates something. Uh, it sort of tells the counterfactual story that had that window not been broken, he would have had a, a complete window just like before. And that shop owner would have also had money to go do whatever else he wanted like buy a new suit and he would have created more output by buying a suit and having a fixed window rather than the destruction just resulted in a complete window. I think that's, I know the story. I don't know yeah. that that's necessarily like that's, the broken window fallacy. I thought that was a great, a great story. And yeah, the, I mean the idea, the, yeah. You got the suit it, part, right. That was good. Cause there's a glazer, right? That's yes, the, that's, that's it. That's, the, that's the person that's who the, benefits. And then it's the tailor who, uh, who uh, See, I remember the out. parts of yeah, the yeah. story, right? Like, yeah. But the general idea is, <clears throat> before you had a fully functioning window, the window's broken, and you and you have one after, right? That's yeah, the sort of and, the and the, after. so the window is destroyed, and people spent this effort to rebuild the window, where instead that same effort could have been doing something else. You could even take the economy out of it. Um, I mean, if we want to take the, the the economy part is like, oh, you bought something, so it shows up on GDP. But you have a window before you have a, you know, if you have a fully functioning window, that time and energy would have been to do something productive. So, yeah, so the, 
So the GDP part, I think, is what so many people grab onto. It's because, mm-hmm. oh, there is this production and that's adding to GDP. And that's part of the problem with how we measure output in the economy is that it's measured by producing something. It doesn't matter what's mm-hmm. produced as long as something is produced. So we're not measuring you know, this poor person who now has to replace his window and can't buy his new suit. He would prefer to have bought the suit, but that's not what gets measured in GDP. So yeah. when, when a whole bunch of stuff gets broken, it's like, oh, we have to repair it. And we that means we have to produce it, which means GDP is going to go up, which is good for the economy. Mm-hmm. So that that's the, the pit that you know, sort of that is the fallacy that, oh, we've made the economy better by doing all this destruction. So theoretically, we should just be burning things down all the time if we want GDP to go up. Yeah. Well, so yeah. That I think when I first heard about it, and I'm going to go back to, I was in college in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit in 2006. And so I, I grew up outside of Houston. So sort of right next, oh, it was five. Yeah. I didn't know if it was my freshman year or my sophomore year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it happened when I was very young in college. Uh, actually, you know what? Hurricane Rita, I think, is the one that hit Houston the year after. Um, so there was a sort of double hurricane at the same time. Uh, but that argument was basically the hurricane hit. And look, uh, you know, New Orleans is so much better because we've now had to rebuild roads and houses. And we're all sitting there going, it would have been way better if the hurricane had not hit. Like, <laughs> yeah. how are people making this argument? I think it helped because I was in the moment like, no, it's better. It would have. We, it would have been better if that hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, you hear these, I like, I hear it in my work with like sports economics of building stadiums and like, look at how great it is that we've torn down this dilapidated area and built something new. And it's like, well, yeah, but you could have done something else with it too. So I guess the idea of like, it's counterfactuals and there's another phrase that's really popular in the space. I don't ever remember what it is. Do you remember, do you know Brian or Matt? I'm, I'm not sure. The, un, I'm not sure. the scene and the unseen. Oh, the scene right? and the, the unseen. The yeah, yeah. That's the place, yeah. right? Um, which is that's always the tough. So, that's the Bastier, right, Matt? Yes, I think so. Okay. Asking me what, what famous <laughs> authors said for quotes, you're looking at the wrong person um, on that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, you, you there need, are some things to, I'm good at. We need to make at, a and, recommendation to you as far as reading material. Yeah, yeah. There's some things I'm good at and my knowledge. <laughs> that's not one of them. Great classic <laughs> literature is not one of them, sadly. The, oh, I think, it, so yeah, I think we'd all agree the broke, I mean, so the broken window fallacy would imply if you destroy something, you know, if you destroy something, sure, it may show up that you're rebuilding it and that part adds to GDP, but that those funds could have done something else. Therefore, you, of course, are not better off, which you know, it's weird that we have to have this complex discussion for anything a two-year-old should understand. No, don't break the glass. We'll be worse off. But we've had to have it because people have said that wars would destroy. But thinking back to World War II, our GDP did increase dramatically once World War II hit. And the unemployment rate did drop dramatically once World War II hit. And I think that's part of what throws people off now i have i have thoughts on it that aren't related to the war itself one is <laughs> i mean that i that i'm happy to share but the ev- everybody also had to live on rations and if you're in the u.s you're you're stuck eating whatever it is they allow I, you to eat so you I, might you our, might be our working. rations were not as bad as the other rations <laughs> yeah so. um and and the rations you pick your rations are, matt <laughs> The rations you're eating are if you're here and not, of course, one of the millions of people who sent off living in 
total misery that is war. Um, and if you look at the distribution of what's being produced there, it's, you know, yeah. consumption, the consumption pattern changes and, per, you guns know, and butter. So, it's so much more guns of the guns and, and not, you know, not nearly yeah. as much of the butter. The government's taking over the economy and, and, you know, honestly, governments doesn't do a really good job in producing things and, and diverting resources when there is a very clear objective and they can, they can really mobilize resources. Um, but when that objective goes away, that's, you know, that's when we uh, take a look yeah. at government production and say, yeah, that may not be the best use of resources but, anymore. The one part about world war two that I think did help the economy that carried over afterwards is I, I would argue, um, I will argue to most people that FDR was a terrible precedent in many, many ways. Um, his leadership for the country in world war two, well, was mixed, right? You can't, it's tough for me to even give him credit for this when he then imprisons on, you know, thousands of perfectly innocent Japanese Americans, but, um, in some ways, right. And, no, I can't even credit that. No, but uh, so I know that. But anyways, he um, there was such a war on firms and businesses in the 30s between trying to impose new taxes to trying to impose new minimum wages to government trying to seize people's gold to not. So I think firms had no idea what to expect moving forward from basically the time FDR was elected until World War One started. They didn't trust anything that might happen or world war ii thank you brian uh once world war ii started the government basically told businesses we have your back we are there there was essentially stable rules of the game and those stable rules of the game carried over afterwards a little bit more and so that was to me if you're looking for a positive impact that was the the one positive economic thing that came from it it wasn't the by you know all of the guns instead of the butter uh for the guns and butter analogy i don't know appreciate both of your takes on my take <laughs> i have a huge gaping hole in my post-world war ii u.s history knowledge which is terrible because i was a history major but that was that was like the class they never taught was what happens you know, after it's world war ii yeah. So, okay. I'm going to right. That's maybe that's a course you should teach, right? The economic history after world war two. Oh yeah. Um, instead of teaching labor, maybe you should teach, uh, <laughs> teach that course instead. Um, okay. So this is where maybe, maybe even after this, I'm going to have to dig in and start looking up stuff. So I was looking while you were talking, I went to look at the MBERs recession dating cycles hmm. um, because I, right. These are the pieces. And I think Matt and I may have talked about this in a previous episode. And if not, I'm happy to talk about it again. I think about all the stuff, that I, that I have learned since finishing grad school about economics and systems and macro, man, I wish I realized these things while I was taking it because I feel like I would have been so much smarter at all of the math and everything we were doing um, that I just sort of better understand stuff. So I was looking at the MBER, like when recessions happened. And I do seem to remember, not when I was in school, I, I learned the whole we, it pulled us out of the Great Recession or the Great Depression and uh, we're better off because of it. And I feel like it's only recently that I have sort of gotten into this like post-World War II history part. Uh, we had a recession, February 1945 to October 1945. Germany surrendered May 1945. So we had a little recession right towards the end of the war. And I feel like I remember these stories. We had another one in 
during 1948-1949. I feel like I remember this story that basically sort of the war was winding down and we weren't producing the same amount of, right? So it's sort of that GDP story. We weren't producing amount of stuff and that sort of took us into a recession. And then sort of as everyone came back, we didn't have the right sort of mix of jobs and industries because we had this massive military production, but then we didn't have people to do it. And sort of it created this sort of double wave of recessions. And so I feel like those things get left out of that story, right? We talk about war ends up making things better. And then again, better in the sense of GDP production, unemployment. And then we sort of like forget about like the things that happened right after it, um, that we sort of focus in on one time period, but not the other time periods instead. I think that's interesting. And I, I need to look more closely at the data, but you, you also have to think about how much, and this goes back to your guns and butter, right? It's how much investment is not taking place during wartime because right. all of the resources are being used to fight a war. So those things get blown up and destroyed and you make new ones. Great. But you're not investing during that period of time. So in a few years when the investments would have paid off, the investments that didn't happen are not paying off. And so you don't have that, that normal trajectory of GDP. So this was a big chunk of my labor course. Um, when I talked about sort of this idea of Amer- American manufacturing and how great it was, and everybody looks back to sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s and stuff, um, like the big argument was basically the the reason it was so great was not sort of the American exceptionalism that we talk about, but because basically Europe bombed everybody's production facilities, this idea of investment, right? So all of the German ones, the English ones, the French ones, those were just leveled. They had no production capacity. We were largely, except for right some Alaskan islands and Hawaiian islands, we were largely unattacked. Our production facilities still existed. And so we were able to have that sort of dominance, not because of anything we had done correctly, right? So this idea of like, what could we have invested in instead and where would it have gone? Uh, but just be sort of a, everybody else just bombed everything and, and ruined yeah. it and gave us a head start. But once they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it more efficiently, better sort of, they uh-huh. they built things correctly for what they were actually using it for. Versus us, we're sort of like rearranging stuff. I don't. I. I. I don't know. I'd have an argue. I think I'd argue with that. Given the so the Which U.S. Part? has grown. The U. Well, the they did. They rebuilt better. Largely, just U.S. GDP growth has exceeded Europe's mm-hmm. GDP growth. Not even. Not even like even in the past twenty years. So yes. not even right. You know the right. Of, but so here's what's wild, right? So we manufacture more stuff, right? We've always manufactured more stuff. Uh, right. It's not that we we don't manufacture. It's that always sort of that labor versus capital manufacturing yeah. story of, you know, why aren't we in the heyday of manufacturing? Like I have I had students who were doing this to me at Penn State. Why are you know, why don't we have more manufacturing? I'm like we make more stuff now. We make three times as much stuff as we did before. Uh, but a lot of that change has happened more recently, not yeah. in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s. We made those changes 70s 80s 90s rather than like sort of i guess differences in when different countries made the changes yeah the the recession in i mean it's tough to imagine if you just think in the abstract that we could we wouldn't have gone through a recession coming out of world war ii the idea of transitioning all of the major automakers from making tanks to making domestic automobiles and the ammunition companies to shift away from that and the electronic i mean it 
just thinking through the massive amounts of what industry was making to making new products in some ways i'm surprised the recessions were so short uh but back then mm. because it, it was we we would have had to have one it was i mean it was the entire economy so I, have well, a, I wonder i wonder about that matt because you know it's sort of you know the post-covid era we've seen that mm -hmm. it's like the reverse of the post-covid yeah. yeah it's like all this this pent-up demand when people couldn't buy anything during the war now all right the war's over people are coming back and man i just want to spend money on something and uh you know i don't want to buy any kind of anything related to the war just produce something for me and um I, I don't you know i assume that 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 demand was was such that it's going to minimize any impact of a of a deep recession because manufacturing you know, they could produce anything and someone's going to say hey thank goodness it's not war related i want to buy it so consumption Actually, yeah. so it you know that shift from government spending to consumption and consumption such a big part of gdp um you know that can really yeah. mitigate the the that's a fair point that might be why it was so short i i i would have well, I would say the one at the end of the war was right. There's the one that's sort of right at the war. And then they've dated that as ending October 1945. So slightly after Japan surrenders. Yep. And then we're in expansion right after. So that's Brian's point, right? Expansion. And then in 1948, a recession. So maybe it is, right? Just those couple years after coming back, you're I'm going to buy as much as I can. And then at a certain point, you're like, okay, wait it's been three years since the war. I need to stop because like, yeah. I can't buy a ton of stuff. Bro. And then you're back in a year long recession. Does that mean we're going to go how, through a COVID how, recession here and a recession? Of course too we are. Yes. Year? We're going through a COVID uh, recession. We always get to recessions at some point. You can't avoid them. There is yeah. a business cycle. Okay. So Matt, I did get this question and maybe Brian can chime in and help going back to the war idea, right? So economics of war. We started by talking about broken window fallacy. The idea that you had a full window, it's broken, you've replaced it with the same thing. However, in some instances, you can improve things in that process. So you think about, right, like you maybe have a dirt road, two lanes, it's rebuilt and it's bigger. There are components, and I've always sort of wondered this where this fine line is, right? There are components that are, well, some some part of that is definitely broken window, but then some part of it is better. Um, in a sense of, I mean, war is, it would be better not to have war, right? So I want to make sure I'm, I'm very clear on that before I accidentally say something incorrectly here. What are some potential improvements possibly that come out of this? Whether that is diplomatic relations, um, new state boundaries, new infrastructure, right? Like, is there, is there, what sort of, places would we expect to see improvements upon what was previous after replacements and fixes? So, I, of the, any the of cons a war out, the in general? War. Yeah, we'll go, yeah. Cons well, outweigh I, the pros. What I'll are it, some things? So I think maybe something specific out of World War II is that the U.S. relationship with Japan and Germany is, is significantly different. And part of that is when the U.S. goes to rebuild those parts of the world, you know, they can... In, inculcate those other those defeated mm -hmm. parts with a more with a different you know mentality it's right you know capitalism is good um you, you don't need to take over the world you can make your life better off by you know building things that other people want 
um, and do it peacefully. And so you in institute that kind of new world, and this is kind of a charged saying, but the new world order where um, it's, you know, war is not the way to do things. Yes, we just had a war, but, you know, let's be friends now. So if you can go into a country and not, you know, not do what you did in the past, you know, in the way back when you went over, took over a country and said, you know, this is, you know, you know, sort of the Genghis Khan type of approach to the world. I was thinking reconstruction when you were starting to face. Oh yeah. Things, right? Reconstruction yeah. would be the same thing. Sure. Um, so you go in and say, all right, yeah, we know you're going to put your own spin on this, but we want to be friends. We'll help you get things started and then we're going to back off. So I, so kind of the, the, I think the political, you know, that teaching a new political, yeah. new economic way of doing things. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's what I was trying to get. I was trying to find like, what are these weird places that you don't think about that sort of, I don't want to say that war has to happen in order for, yeah, it would be but, nice if it, if it could I happen mean, without a war, but like, I don't want to get into military spending. I think we could do a separate episode just on that and we're kind of, we're gone, but there are, I mean, you know, the, I think it was the defense department that funded some of the early research for the internet, right? No, there is the question of, how much was spent and that money was in the private market would things have happened yeah. first, but you could fund some, um, I seem to recall, and I could be wrong, but a lot of the GPS technology might've come out of uh department of defense funding initially as well. Um, so I think uh, one of the things I remember I was learning and tell me if I'm wrong about this, the interstate highway system was sort of military in purpose. The idea that you had mm. sort of, yeah. I, I feel like I remember like, Eisenhower wanted people to be able to get away quickly to get to get away quickly, but like also be able to land planes in different places. So like there's certain amounts that are flat relative to uh, like straight versus curves and stuff. But I remember there was sort of a military underpinning to the interstate highway system. Um, yeah, my understanding, it was just to get away quickly from a city if there was a nuclear war, literally. Okay. That, that's what I the other parts could be true. Um yeah, it was the De Interstate Defense Act, I think, was what it was called. Um, so the. No, I'm sure there are other things. I mean, you could argue. It's job training. For individuals, you know, especially those who are only in a short period of time, go in as 17 year olds, maybe not the most disciplined and come out and certainly ready to work a nine to five job. And think quite frankly, a nine to five job sounds pretty darn easy after living military life for a few years. So that's, I mean, that's there. That's a big positive side effect. And I, uh, you know, I think for a military friend, like my my father served in Vietnam. Um, the you know certainly a shout out to the troops and thank you for your service. The um, but what the skills you learn there certainly transfer to a number of different industries. There is I guess a, one argument the world war two argument is right. We had more women participating in the workforce previously. So taking people who had essentially no sort of a lot of people who had no workforce training at all, getting workforce training all of a sudden, um, it's sort of in that same vein, but right. Slightly different. Yeah. Brian, you're Brian, about to speak. Yeah. So there's the, um, you know, kind of the idea that if, if you train people in how to use a gun and how to fight, there is a deterrent effect as well down the road. I think of my wife was just in Switzerland mm. and she's, you know, the Swiss talk of, 
they're, they're talking about how great everything is in Switzerland and nobody attacks Switzerland. Um, I mean, the terrain is horrible. You're not going to, you know, it's, it's impossible to fight a, a real war in Switzerland because you're always either heading up or down a mountain, but everybody knows how to use a weapon. So, I mean, there is that now the same thing as in Israel, you know, same kind of training occurred in Israel, but that, that hasn't, that didn't slow anything down here. But um, I mean, there is, in in large part, you know, in large part, there is a deterrent effect of hey, if I'm going to attack someone and everybody has a gun under the bed, that's that's sort of the story yeah. that we heard in in like social studies class in high school. You don't want to attack actually, Switzerland because everybody has a gun under the bed. Well, and actually, though, I think the gun ownership in Israel is really slow. Hmm. I okay. I'd heard I, I think I saw that on Marginal Revolution that it's under one of Tyler Cohen's predictions was this may increase this um support for second amendment rights that was you know he comes out with predictions on things and you look back five years later a lot of them are stunningly accurate um i think he's pretty good at figuring that stuff out the that, that's a good i mean the deterrence aspects a good aspect right if you have military spending it's I mean, nobody has i mean no country has tried to do an invasion of the u.s for quite a while of course most other countries haven't been invaded either but yeah yeah so will you guys, when you teach, do you bring into the classroom current events? I mean, is this something that you would talk about in your classes? I'm teaching game theory now. I have, I didn't bring it up Tuesday. Um, I don't know that I'll, I don't know how much I'll bring this up. I have hinted at it without actually talking about it um only in the sense that i'm so i'm teaching international trade this week in my mm. micro course and one of the big components that i talk about is often you trade with your neighbors because they're closest to you so it's cheaper and that by trading with your neighbors it creates sort of a stable so i have this conversation about like globalization helps keep things stable because you rely on other people um and then, but even today, I talk about this idea that, and I, so I, then I say, but sometimes that isn't true. So I sort of hint at it: is that mm -hmm. sometimes it isn't true if you don't, you know, don't agree with them ideologically. And then I sort of talk about like why we don't trade or why we have protected trade in the sense of like. I, so today, actually, I talked about national defense. Right? You don't, you don't rely fully on another place because you need to have your own food, weapons, oil. So I have skirted around it, um, but I think anyone who is I think any of my students who were aware of what's happening could connect the dots on what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and if they weren't aware of what I was talking about, they sort of fully missed it. But anyway, I'm, I'm pitching it from the market standpoint, right? Be integrated with the other people, rely on them, and it, it, it forces you to work out your disagreements. Uh, if yeah. you are separate from each other, then you have no problem fighting with each other because you don't lose anything. Sure. And that I mean, that's the, the kind of the 80s, 90s, version of diplomacy of, Hey, we want to all be friends. And the more we integrate with other countries, the less likely, presumably, you know, con military conflicts will be. I do teach from Krugman's book. So. Mm -hmm. that's <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll be, I'll be doing, uh, I, I, I'll be teaching economic growth to the macro class here in a couple of weeks. And I will definitely bring the, you know, bring up war. And I, I don't know how many of them are aware of what's going on, but um, you know, just, I don't know if Matt, if, or Matt and Jadrian, if you're ready to do pop culture, but, um, yeah, it's probably, it's probably time. I'm guessing <laughs> our episode's already a little bit long, but yeah. So, so I've got two pop culture 
references. One is really, really, really old and one is relatively new. So whenever I teach economic growth, the first thing I do is I show a clip from the first Black Panther movie, the introductory clip of the Black Panther. So it talks about how, um, all right, this kid's asking his grandfather to tell him a story and he tells him a story of Wakanda and this meteorite from Wakanda, uh, come from space comes, lands in Wakanda and everything, you you know, all this vibranium is affecting the plant life and and it changes the history of this country and so they have this resource in and Wakanda is fic- this fictional country in Africa they get this resource and then they do this amazing presentation of while Wakanda is super stable they have this resource and they're developing all this technology and they're telling the story of everything that's going around on around them in Africa. And it's all the slave trade and war and conflict and how basically the the uh, the um, suggestion there is that while, ev- while everything is going perfectly in Wakanda, everything is falling apart around them. And because everything is falling apart around them, there's no growth in Africa. But Wakanda has this incredible economic growth and it becomes the wealthiest country in the world that nobody knows about. It's a the story that's told in that out of maybe two minutes, maybe three minute clip is I barely have to teach anything about growth after showing that clip. It's it's a magnificent three minutes. Is that on Critical Commons or media economics media? Uh, It's on Critical Commons. It's on my website, comicnomics.com. So um, you can find it there. I don't know that I knew you had that website. Um, well, it's it's in list. its development stage, but okay. it's it is live, so you can find it there. Awesome, awesome. Uh, that is a tough title to type out. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you a World War II propaganda short film uh, to tie it back all to the beginning. I, this is on the Econ Media Library. Uh, it is called Going Places. Uh, it was produced in 1948. Um, as a, uh, it's a propaganda piece to essentially sort of talk about the merits of free markets and free enterprise and uh, sort of realizing that if you just put your mind to it, you can be more productive and get to do the things that you want. Uh, So there's like this story of this boy who uh, wants to be fishing, but his mom is making him go make soap so that they can have it. Uh, And then sort of while he's doing it, he realizes that if if he just creates a new way of making soap, uh, he can make the soap faster and then he can go spend time fishing instead. Um, and so it's like a really great sort of short piece, but it's sort of nice. I would say like in hindsight, it's very easy to talk about inter- free enterprise and entrepreneurship and stuff. But the cool part about it is realizing the time period that's, that it's produced, um, which is way more interesting. So it's right sort of at the end of World War II. Uh, it came out in 1948. Uh, so sort of getting this idea of, you know, hey, we we're the we're the American economy, and we need to uh, have this free enterprise. Businesses are coming back, create new things, that sort of stuff. Awesome, really neat. Awesome. So it's on the Econ Media Library. Okay, all right. So my my old one. Let me give you my old one real quick because this is my favorite episode of Star Trek, the original series. So way 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 back, it's called the Taste of Armageddon. And what happens is the Enterprise shows up on you know at a planet. They're like, hey, what's going on here? And there's these two neighboring planets and they've been at war for 500 years. And the way the war works is it's basically war games. They launch a a virtual war, a a virtual attack. And so none of the capital gets destroyed, but 
if the citizens of the planet are where the attack took place, they must voluntarily submit to extermination. And so the capital is the reason the war can go on for so long is because none of the capital gets destroyed. It's only they only lose labor and uh, and it works. So, of course, the, the caveat in the story is that the enterprise ends up getting hit by an attack and they are ordered to send all of their uh, crew down to the planet to be exterminated. And this is where Captain Kirk violates the prime directive like he tends to always do. And like, we're not playing by these rules. We got to we got to show you what war is really like. And so they start if I remember correctly, they actually blow a few things up uh, to show them that if you continue this way of fighting war, war will be with you forever. But if you actually fight a war the real way wars are supposed to be fought, then the you will realize how terrible war is and you won't want to fight a war. Interesting. You said war games, and I was—I completely forgot about this movie. And oh yeah, how much right? I loved this movie <laughs> when I was a kid. Oh, uh, well, thank you, Brian, for suggesting the topic, and thank you to everybody who stayed with us for this little bit longer than normal episode. I, I don't know—we're recording this on October 11th. I'm not certain exactly when this will drop, um, but or what has happened since the time or that we what recorded has happened. Right. And... So great point. Forgive us if we've made some comment and then some ridiculous action happened since that may make us all look foolish. But it has been four or I, five, it happened on Saturday, right? Yeah. Saturday morning. Yeah. Exactly. So it's been four or five, five days. Four or five days since the first attack. So time frame. If you if you made it this far, we probably should have started with that at the beginning. Matt, yeah, maybe yeah. you should make a little introduction that says, "Hey, we yeah, only knew be. about this for four days." Yeah, please yeah, forgive yeah. us for whatever's happened. And if you enjoyed the show, once again, please leave us a five star rating and a review. And we will be thrilled to send you economics happy hour stickers if you do so. The We are also looking for sponsors. So let us know if you're interested in sponsoring. <laughs> yes. And for those on YouTube, Brian is showing off the economics happy hour sticker, which uh, I could show it off, but it's on the back of the laptop, which has the. Well, I, I might have mine. So while you're while you're doing that pitch, and also if you have any ideas, right? If you have topics that you want to hear us talk about, or you would like to hear us talk about it, uh, oh, you can it also is. join us. Just like Brian, uh, we're happy to talk to you about all sorts of other things. We end up coming up with topics that we're like, we need to talk about this in a future podcast, and then we never talk about them. <laughs> so if you've heard a topic we've mentioned, come talk to us about it. We're happy to talk to people too. Absolutely. And well, thank you all for being here. And I'll, I'll raise my empty glass to you, and you can raise your Perrier and your whiskey something sidecar, sidecar. sidecar. whiskey sidecar. Cheers! 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 Bye, guys. <laughs>